0: and shop for anything outdoors when you make a purchase from the go wild store everything is free shipping anything that you purchase anywhere in the country no matter how big free shipping so go down to the show notes click on the go wild link at the bottom and get signed up today and let's go wild if y'all purchase anything from go wild Make sure that you're using the Houndsman XP promo code. And that code is going to be HXP10. So when you go in there and you download your cart, and you come up to the the bottom and it says promo code, add Houndsman XP to it. On this episode of The Journey, we are going back to school, guys yes we're going back to history class and not the history that you think of but we are going to learn the history of the hound where it originated how it got stateside and what our forefathers actually used and implemented the hound for i think this is going to be a surprise when you start learning little tidbits of history on the hound and it may not be exactly what you think it is but today we have a very special guest with us. He is a historian. He is an author. He is a photographer. He runs his own podcast and magazine, which is called Hunting Dog Confidential. He has wrote numerous articles for gundog magazines across the world. Some of them are Gundog Central, Dogs Unlimited, Project Upland, We have Craig Koshik with us today, who is a historian, and he studies and researches and travels to learn the history of the dog. To say he's a dog nut probably is not doing justification, but we're going to learn the history today, and Craig's going to take us back in time, and we are going to learn things that we may or may not have known, a lot of the stuff I hadn't known. So we're going to jump right into this, and we are already talking dogs.
1: Nordic dogs. And what we love to do is really go down the rabbit hole of the culture of those dogs. Where were they created? Why were they created? Who developed them? Where are they now? How are they used? Um, what can we learn from them uh, you know, to teach us about our own dogs? So yeah, it's, it's Hunting Dog Confidential. It's a, a podcast and a magazine.
0: Yeah. So tell the listeners, and, t- and tell me too, because um, what tell us a little bit about your background. Um, what what got you into the love of dogs and researching and studying dogs the way that you do?
1: Many years ago, um, my wife and I lived in apartments and condos. We lived here in Canada and in Quebec and then in Europe for a little while, and we were back and forth. And we never had room for a for a dog because we didn't have a yard and a fence. But the minute we got a yard and a fence, I got a dog, and I had I, I you know had the good luck of getting a, a decent bird dog. I got a, a Weimaraner, and he was an excellent uh, hunting dog. Um, but one of the things I soon realized was number one, I'm not a good dog trainer, and I never learned how to train a dog properly. But number two, I didn't really know much about these dogs. I mean, I I could pronounce the breed name. I knew they came from some place in Germany. And friends of mine had other breeds of bird dogs. They had German short hairs or German wire hairs. And I really didn't know much about them. Now, this is pre-internet days. This is in the 1990s. Um, and so, you know, I'm a bookworm. I'm a, I'm an artist, actually, by profession. I'm a, I, I've also taught science and math and photography and things like that. But mm-hmm. I'm a bookworm, mm-hmm. mainly. And so I figured, well, I better learn more about my dog. I better learn more about all kinds of dogs. So let's go to the library. So I did. I went to the library and I would, you know, take up, uh, you know, uh, breed books and sort of dog encyclopedias. And then I, I started noticing that there was a lot of contradictory information. There was a lot of missing information. Uh, and there were a lot of questions. The more I read, the more I I wanted to know. And so I thought, well, there must be a book somewhere that sort of explains all of this stuff to me, that explains all these breeds and where they came from and why they came from there and how they got here and sure enough there you know there wasn't one I just I could not find a single book like that again pre-internet days you have to rely on libraries and magazines and things so I decided well I'll just write one <laughs> you know crazy mm-hmm. as it seems I said I'll just sit down and I'll write a book I'll but I'm not going to write it just from stuff that I'm regurgitating from other sources I'm going to actually go and see these dogs and I'm a professional photographer or was at that time and uh I figured, well, I'll go, you know, if I want to learn about French dogs, I'll go to France. We love traveling. So we went to France and photographed dogs and spoke with the breeders and club members there. And same thing in Germany and Spain and Italy and all over Europe. And it just ended up being a a ginormous project. It took me 11 years to create my, or 10, just over 10 years to create my first book, which is Pointing Dogs Volume 1. And it examines all of the breeds that came from Europe, all the pointing dogs. And now, actually, I'm just just like the other day, I finished writing my second book. It took me another 10 years to do volume two, which is on British and Irish breeds, uh, pointers and setters. And so researching all these dogs and doing all this travel, I mean, I've seen all of these various pointing breeds in all of their native lands. And I've learned a heck of a lot. I've learned a heck of a lot about dogs, of course, but also about Different approaches to training and different approaches to using the dogs, different ways to hunt with them, um, where they came from, their history, their their background, their culture, especially the culture. Um, you know, I can tell you, German dogs are like German people, exactly. <laughs> French dogs are like French people. They share so many things, and so when we look at our dogs, we're kind of looking at ourselves in the mirror in a certain way. So that's my background, and you know, it's always a pleasure to talk dogs with anybody. And you're right, hounds—that's not my world. Uh, I, I know something about it. I've read a ton about it, especially the history books, uh, and I've spoken to a number of houndsmen. Um, but you know, what I can share is is that common ancestry they have with the pointing dogs, because you go back far enough, and they all came from mainly the main source. And a lot of the early American history of the pointing dogs is related to and intertwined with the history, the early American history of hounds and how they were first used, how they first got here and how they were first used here and then how they've developed since then.
0: Yeah. And like I said, you know, we, I mean, my great grandfather run Fox dogs. um, And if you go back in the, the tree and Walker line. I think the Fox dog was one of the things that started establishing the tree and Walker, but my granddad run, you know, he run Fox dogs and he run running dogs. And of course that was back, um, in the seventies and up into the eighties when he finally stopped. But that was the only part I remembered, um, in my mm-hmm. life, in my lifespan. But yeah, so, <clears throat> and, and, you, you like to bird hunt too, don't you?
1: I do indeed. Yes. Yeah.
0: I mean, I know when we talked, you said you were going out and, um, and do some hunting. And now that you have all this knowledge on where these dogs derive from and the training methods and like everything that you've accumulated over all these years, studying them, how, how does that, How does your perspective or how does that change what you do or how you do things?
1: Yeah, it really has. Well, first of all, I mean, the the biggest change is that I used to hunt without dogs. Obviously, before I had it, I I grew up in a hunting family. My my parents are, you know, my grandparents are, are, both sets of grandparents are immigrants. So my mom's family came from Iceland and my father's family came from Ukraine. And so to put food on the table for their growing families, and they had large families. They lived at the south end of Lake Winnipeg here in Manitoba. They hunted, uh, you know, I mean, my mom to this day won't eat a uh, wild game because she ate it every day of her life for the first 20 some years of her life. And mm-hmm. and now she wants, you know, store-bought food. But, you know, I, I grew up in a hunting family. So for most of my life until I was, I guess, in my late twenties, um, I hunted without dogs. Once I got dogs, you know what changed is the fact that I'll never hunt without a dog. I mean, mm-hmm. if I drive out mm-hmm. to a hunting field and I forgot my gun at home, I'll take up my camera and I'll go hunt my dog. But if the opposite, you know, was true. If I arrived there and I have my gun and my camera and I left my dog at home, I'm turning around and going home.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's,
1: that's, that's one of the things I, my wife and I, um, hunt for, because, and with our dogs. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing I guess is that I have adopted certain ways of using my dogs um, that are that I've learned from other cultures and other ways. And I guess the easiest and the quickest example I can give you is that in North America, most of your listeners or all of your listeners who have um, bird dogs, they'll understand this. In North America, a, a pointer or a setter or whatever kind of pointing dog you got slams on point, boom, it's got a bird somewhere out there. Now that dog doesn't move it's on point point. and us as the handler or as the gunner we're going to walk out in front of that dog and we're going to try and flush that bird um, so it's the handler that actually flushes the bird in most european countries um, they don't do that the dog points the handler comes up next to the dog and then together they move slowly towards the bird until the bird is flushed at which point we shoot uh, in some other countries, they will actually come up next to the dog and then give them a command, and then the dog will rush in and flush the bird, at which time you, you'll take your shot. So I've started to do that now simply because of the types of birds we hunt. We hunt a lot of sharp sharptail grouse, and they run. Um, and I've been sometimes 20, 30, 40 yards in front of my dog on point trying to figure out where the bird is. Well, he knows. The dog knows exactly where that bird is. He can smell it. I can't. So that's one of the things I've done. Um, we've also changed the way that we um, treat and sort of, um, deal with, you know, after the shot, in other words, once the bird is in hand, uh, or, you know, whatever we're hunting, we were hunting rabbits, the other hares, uh, uh, snowshoe hares, um, we, we butcher it differently. Now we cook it differently and we treat it differently. Again, growing up in a hunting family as a kid, you shot as much game as you could legally and you put it in the freezer cause winter was coming. mm mm-hmm. And winter's long and and food is expensive. So you put all you know, I mean, the deer and the moose and they all they all go in the fridge and they all go in the freezer because winter's coming. And you didn't shoot a sniper. You didn't shoot a woodcock because that same shotgun shell could shoot a goose or shoot a big old duck. So you didn't waste a shell on small game. Well, once we started traveling throughout Europe and learning some of their cultures and some of their ways of doing things, we realized that, no, you know what? We don't really need that much meat for winter uh we can go and buy it at the local piggly wiggly um what we need to do is 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 shoot the game that we have here learn to cook it as best we can and serve it with the best bottle of wine we have
0: and honor it
1: and and you know eat it during the season and and in a, in a sort of a different way um so yeah those are some of the things that have changed simply because of you know my
0: journey um through dogs right and you know what you? I mean, I love the saying. You you hunt for, with and because of the dogs. Yep. Like that. Yep. Um, you know, I, I I chase bear, and and raccoon some, but I can't imagine. And I can't deer hunt with dogs in the area that I'm at. And I've never done it. Um, I've run a lot of off game, but not on purpose. Just putting it out there, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But I I can't imagine hunting um, bear with, without my dogs. Like, you know, that's, it's just a part, it's just a part of me. And, you know, when you said that, I'm like, that's why, I I mean, that's right. Like he, he hit the nail right on the head. This is why I do what I do. And it's for, because, and with, and without with, there's no sense. And if I didn't, if I didn't run hounds, like I wouldn't be out there hunting bear. I wouldn't be doing it. So I had of an interesting
1: conversation with a with a person a little while ago and they're heavily into the show side of their particular breed of dog and they don't hunt with their dogs at all they just love showing them and you know good on them i mean shows are fun if you're into that the sort of a thing that you know it ripples the economy and it's a it's an activity for the whole family so i, I understand people get an enjoyment out of it but the it came down. Our discussion finally came down to the fact that you know I don't really know shows. I don't do shows. I'm a, I'm a hunting uh, uh, person, and I believe that the breed that I have uh, should always remain a hunting dog. And they said, "Well, come on. If if all of a sudden, you know, you could no longer hunt, do you think your breed should go extinct?" And I said, with all honesty, yeah, a hunting dog is a hunting dog. And and if hunting suddenly, you know, ceased um, to be, then our hunting dogs really have no real reason to be. There's lots of great companion dogs and other sorts of dogs. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that our dogs would go extinct, but they would certainly change it to something. I mean, a hunting dog hunts. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 a, a dog is what a dog does. And, and so that's the point that I'm at. I won't hunt without them, and I won't hunt with a dog that doesn't hunt. I mean... My sister's got one of the most beautiful little dogs. She's a little mix of, who knows, Heinz 57, and she's a wonderful dog. She's not a hunting dog, and I love that dog to death, but she does what she does. She's a companion dog. She's a lap dog, and she's fantastic at it. My dogs are hunting dogs. Now, they're also, you know, they like to cuddle, and they like to be lap dogs too, but Mm -hmm. their primary purpose in this life is to hunt and to put a smile on a hunter's face, and And that's why I have them, and that's what we do. And they love it. Like they live, that's what they live for. They are are genetically programmed to do what they do. Mm -hmm. And so, again, the same discussion with this show-oriented person. You know, she said, well, hunters don't care about the health of their dogs. And I said, well, it's true that in certain circles, a lot of hunters won't do, you know, some of the tests that a lot of show people do because they're all about the genetic tests and the hips and the blood Mm -hmm. and the elbows and this and that and the other thing. Fine, I understand the reasons for that. Um, but I asked her, what about mental health? What about the mental health of that Labrador retriever down the road that the lady doesn't let swim because it'll ruin its coat? Mm. You, you've got an animal which every fiber of its being says jump in the water. Every every It's hardwired to want to jump in the water and fetch something to you. That's how it's been selectively bred over hundreds of years. And now you're saying to that thing, yeah, no, you can't do it. You take a border collie and put them in a backyard with nothing to herd. It's, it's, it's almost torture for these poor things, really. I mean, so, and then if you breed a hunting breed long enough and it loses the instinct to hunt, you're breeding a defective version of that dog. You are breeding a dog that has a mental illness for that dog. A pointing dog that doesn't point is not healthy. Is not mentally healthy. You've got coonhounds. Um, I suppose, you know, the, the, the voice is a really, you know, important part. Well, if all of a sudden you got a line of these dogs that had no voice and didn't want to trail and didn't want a tree and didn't want to hunt, you'd think there's something wrong with these dogs. Yeah. No matter how many blue ribbons they're going to win, there's something mentally wrong with those dogs. Yes. Um, and so it, it really it, it, it does come down to a certain appreciation of what are we doing? with our dogs and why are we doing it? And it comes down to people who have hunting dogs who hunt, get it. People who don't, don't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Very true. Yeah. And I, if my dogs didn't, um, yeah, I mean, just everything you're saying is resonating with, with me and who I am and what I stand for. So, so Craig, what, let's get into the history a little bit. Take us back and, you know, educate us on on what you know.
1: Well, let's, yeah, let's let's zoom in and focus in on, on, on hounds. Um, uh, you know, I mean, we can go all the way back to uh, Roman times. We can go back to pre-Roman times. Um, you know, one of the examples I use is, um, uh, you know, if you've ever seen that movie called Gladiator, it's a pretty mm-hmm. good movie. It's about a Roman soldier or whatever. There's a couple of scenes in there where they – they unleash dogs of war. These are big molluser dogs, just mm-hmm. these big mastiff-type dogs. You know, um, those dogs were also used, or variations of those dogs were also used in hunting. You'll see pictures of greyhoundy-looking uh, dogs um, on Egyptian pyramids. We can go way, way, way back. I mean, you go all the way back to cavemen, and they were using dogs to hunt. Because let's face it dogs are faster than us so they can run faster for shorter periods of time than we can. Mm-hmm. They are stronger in certain ways. Their jaws are stronger and they're, you know, they're, 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 they're just, they're, they can smell way better. They can hear better. They can see better in certain situations than we can. So they're just a, you know, an aid to us and we, we help them. I mean, this is a symbiotic relationship, you know, dogs, you know we didn't domesticate dogs dogs domesticated themselves i mean that's a whole other episode we could talk about but <laughs> no no caveman took a wolf puppy out of the cave and domesticated it you know they, they they over thousands of years they domesticated themselves simply because humans settled down and threw a lot of garbage around their <laughs> around their encampments uh, and dogs you know the the the, the tamer ones the, the the braver ones the ones that got closest fed the best And so eventually they sort of, you know, evolved themselves into the domestic dog. Anyway, we can can fast forward a few thousand years because when we talk about hounds and if you want to get into a period of time and a a place where if we went into a time capsule and, you know, space shuttle of some sort and zoomed you back to a certain period of time where the dogs kind of look like they kind of look like now and they work in the way that they work now, um, that you would actually sort of recognize them would be would be 15th, uh, 16th century France and England. Now, you wouldn't be able to understand the language because English was far different at that time, but you, you would kind of get what these guys are doing with their dogs. Um, and the dogs would look very similar to what they, they look like today. And these are the hounds. The French call them running hounds. The English would call them various, you know, like harriers and beagles and things like that, or the forerunners from these dogs. They called them hounds as well. And what,
0: what, give those the, dogs. what give them that name? Go ahead. What give them the name Hound? Like what? What? What was it that that dog picked up that name? The journey on Houndsman XP has teamed up with One TDC. This dual action support for oral health and mobility in our dogs. This unique supplement is so effective that it is recommended by top veterinary experts worldwide. To maintain and improve our dog's health in four different areas. Their oral health, hips, joints, and muscles, skin, coat, energy, and recovery. Guys, I've been using this product for the last six months and it has been a game changer for me. If you're looking for something to help with the overall health of your dog, go to worksowell.com and give this product a try. It is highly recommended by Houndsman XP here on The Journey.
1: So the word hound is quite old. It comes from an old German word, which comes from an old Greek word. We can go all the way back to Indo-European languages. And up until about the 14th century, hound, or in Old English they would say hund, was a word they used for all domestic canines. Um, Within that group of huns or hounds, You would have dogs, especially dogs that look like mastiffs or bulldogs. Those were called dogs. Okay, So any dog running around the street was called a hound, but the one the butcher had, you call that one a dog. So dog was a subset of hounds. But everything changed. By the 16th century, for some reason, hound went out of use and dog became the general term. Anything with four legs that was a dog was a dog. And then, you know, even the French used it. Um, they just put another G on the end. They call it a dog, D-O-G-G-E. Um, and a lot of different languages sort of adopted that word dog. And hound kind of went into decline. And it only became relevant for certain types of dogs, like sight hounds and running hounds and blood hounds.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So hound is Used to be a general word, and a dog was a specific one, and it flipped meanings in the 16th century.
0: Huh? To me, I mean, sitting there and listening to that, it it should stand for hunter. That's what hound should stand for—is hunter. (coughs) Um,
1: Yeah, and so, but there's a really interesting. What I like about the word hound too is how um, it it changed meanings. You know, so uh, I'll give you a little story. So again. Hound was the old English term for all dogs. Specific types of dogs in there were called dogs. So the butcher had a dog. Everybody else had a hound. Then it flipped. Now everybody's got dogs. And that guy down the street, he's got a hound. You come to the U.S. or in in America and in American history, um, by the time it got to America, the word hound not only had fallen out of favor. Now, no longer was it this word that described a whole, like every kind of dog it was a certain kind of dog and it was also used as a slur it was you know people would be called oh you're such a dirty hound um and it, it took on a meaning and in american pop culture the meaning was it ended up meaning like a gigolo it meant it ended up meaning like like a hound you you could say oh he's a dirty hound well when you call someone a dirty hound, what you're saying, you're actually saying that he's a, he's a man who lives off of the, um, the earnings of a woman. And that's where uh, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog comes from. You know that Elvis song? The Elvis
0: song. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's one of the most famous songs. Actually, that was voted as the number, like in the top five most important songs ever recorded in America. But did you know that Elvis Presley didn't record it first? It was actually recorded um, by a woman named Big Mama Thornton. And the reason I tell this story is because it really encapsulates what happened to the hounds in America. So we were in France and in, in England and they were breeding different types of hounds and using them for different types of hunting. And we can get back. I'll explain exactly how they were doing it. But once it came to America, they were formed in amalgams. They were crossbred. They were changed. They were, they were developed into their own local varieties. That song, that song, Hound Dog, was Big Mama Thornton who sang it first, this big African-American woman the song was written by two Jewish guys and the guy who recorded and arranged it was Greek. So basically that song is like a melting pot of the American culture, right? Ah. Is a Greek immigrant recording this, this song written by two Jewish guys sung by an African American woman about a hound, an old English word, which now in America means a dirty dog, a dirty guy, a guy that's not, (laughs) you know, uh, on the up and up. And so, I, I just that story to me has always resonated. You know, every time I hear that song, "You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog," and I encourage your listeners, go to YouTube, type in Big Mama Thornton, and watch her version of Hound Dog. It's 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 quite a cool version of the song. But let's go back to France. Let's go back to France and England. All right, we're in our we're in our time machine, and we're zapped back to you know 1550, and we're somewhere in France or somewhere in England. And they're running around with their dogs. And what are they doing with them? Well, they have very, very formalized hunts. And all dogs, just like cultures, are divided. They're divided by geography. You've got English dogs. You've got French dogs. You've got crosses between the two that are called Anglo-Francais dogs. They still exist today. They are half-bred dogs. They are dogs that are Um, mixes there there's no there was no shame then there's no shame now they are absolutely sort of half breed type dogs so they're divided by geography some are in France some are in England some are in between they're divided by what they do some of them run and simply chase deer other ones lie in wait and as that deer comes zipping by because he's been chased by another one they grab the deer Other ones are there to kill it, to seize it, and pull it down, or to to bay it, or to bark after it. They have other ones that are there just to track the deer. They have ones that are silent, ones that that bark, that bay. And they have dogs for the rich, and they have dogs for the poor. And the dogs for the poor are the ones that they're not supposed to have, but they end up getting them anyway. (laughs) Because they breed them to the rich man's dog, and so... There were laws that you couldn't have a greyhound, like a pure greyhound. So you bred the greyhound to a collie and you got a lurcher, and that was okay. It was a poacher's dog. Mm. So all those dogs back in Europe, well, what happens when the Europeans first, you know, I mean, literal years after Columbus, you know, came over, what did they do? Well, they started bringing everything over. They brought their ships over, and of course, they brought enough to eat. They probably bought some horses and some pigs some of which are still wild and running around to this day, but they brought dogs. And some of the first dogs they ever brought over were hound dogs. They brought sight hounds. They brought lurchers. They brought long dogs. They brought mixes of them. They brought, um, uh, curs. Um, they brought just basically any kind of dog that they were using. They even brought some really early sort of primitive type bird dogs over here. And so, Once those dogs came to America, we saw similar things play out. Geography played a role. Some of those dogs went north. Some of those dogs went south. Um, The types of hunting played a role, the types of game. Some of those dogs were bred for squirrels. Some of them were bred for bear. Some of them were bred for coyotes and wolves out in the west. Um, And class played a role. Some of them were for rich people. Some of them were for not so rich people. Washington had foxhounds, and I guarantee you, some of the poor people within a few miles of Washington's place had, you know, descendants of his of his foxhounds. You know, they got them somehow, and basically, that's how the hounds came to America and came to North America was with European settlers who brought them and their traditions and their ways of hunting brought them here, and then Americans they modified them to suit their local game, terrain, and traditions.
0: Hmm. So, and I know that, you know, foxhounds were, in my mind, and my perception may be a little wrong, uh, because I don't know the history as well as I should, or I definitely don't know it as good as you do. But it seems like, you know, the foxhounds was probably some of the original dogs that we used, in the states because that is that correct or did we did we do something else that i'm missing out on
1: foxhounds were no yes yes i should say that yeah you know if you look at all the various hounds that that are being used today all the treeing dogs and some of the cur dogs and stuff like that they will trace back to those um first foxhounds because those are the ones that were you see fox hunting uh, you know, sort of developed a little bit later again. if we went back to 1500 uh, in France and England, you wouldn't see fox hunting. You would see them using uh, they, they, you know horses. Uh, they were mounted uh, and they were hunting in a similar way. I mean they were sort of you know dashing across the landscape or through the forest in in pursuit of game. but the game wasn't fox. The game was probably deer mm-hmm. uh, or boar or in some cases rabbit, but mainly it was deer and stag and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um so the same sort of principles applied in that you know those early running hounds were foxhound like that's where the foxhound came from it was only a little bit later on that that the british really started the fox hound, like you know, fo- fox is something to do or something to actually pursue. And there is some claim that it was for, you know it was sort of a varmint then you wanted to you know predator control and things like that. But basically, it's a little bit later. But it wasn't around the time it was it was a big deal by the time Lafayette was here and advising uh, Washington um it it was sort of all the rage at that time that was the that was the main sport and it was also the sport of high society it was where you got a lot of political favors and some discussion and you know that sort of thing it was just a it was just a great chance for everybody to meet and in fact they didn't really kill a lot of foxes um to this day there are a lot of fox hunting in a lot of fox hunting still done and they don't kill a lot of fox but yes you are correct in that most of the treeing breeds and most of the hound breeds we have in the States will trace back to those original imports. But there are older introductions of of hounds. Um, the very earliest, um, Hochwald is, uh, Albert Hochwald uh, talks about the earliest pointers in America, probably or may have come from Spain. And they would have come in Spanish America when the Spaniards were in Florida. Um, we're talking the earliest, you know, we're talking the mid-1500s. Well, they came over and, and, you know, I mean, they wanted to to take the riches. They they came here. They were looking for the fountain of youth, and they were also looking for a whole lot of gold and silver. So they brought men and weapons and horses, and they brought dogs, and they brought big, big big-ass mean dogs. Uh, They brought hounds with them. Um, Yes, to help them hunt. Yes, to help them, you know, protect them in the wilds. but also to really sort of dominate the locals. Uh, They came in here with some pretty massive war type dogs. And so there is speculation that some of that blood got into all of the lines of the domestic and sort of hunting dogs that we have here in North America. And so, even before Washington's time, even before that time when the Spaniards are here, and certainly in the 1600s, other dogs would have come, and they would have been of the uh, of the sight hound variety, um, lurchers and long dogs, those sorts of things, dogs, stag hounds, and things like that that people would have used. Um, there's some there's some unbelievable stories, you know, in the uh, um, online and some of the archives here, um, and you know, of, of these guys coming over from Europe and, you know, with a couple of packs of these stag hounds and going out West and hunting bus Buffalo with them. I mean, like actual bison and, and, and antelope and elk and things like that out in the West. It was, it was a thing that they did.
0: Hmm. So <clears throat> do you have any history on when we started putting the more tree and you, you've referred to the cur dog a couple of times. Is there a history what, – what is the history about bringing in the treeing dog to the running dog? Do you know any of that?
1: Yeah. So uh, treeing is, is more or less an American phenomenon. There's not a lot of treeing – um, done in Europe. I mean, there is in certain areas in Scandinavia and Finland and, uh, Sweden or Norway, they do a type of treeing Um, they'll use little dogs. Um, they're spitz dogs. They kind of look like huskies or Malamutes, mm-hmm. sort of small racy Malamutes. Mm-hmm. And those dogs will tree, uh, but what they do is they tree birds. They'll tree black grouse and capercaillie. And it's very similar. I mean, you know, you're walking around with your gun, um, in these cases with a gun and, and the dog you let a dog out and they're typically hunted alone uh, with one hunter and you let them out and they just run off. And when they find game, which could range, I mean, sometimes it's an elk or what they call an elk. It's a moose. We call it a moose. Um, they'll bark at a moose and the moose will just have a standoff with the dog. And obviously you hear it barking, you go up and you, you have, you know, you shoot your supper. Well, the, the treeing part of that is for capercaillie and black grouse, which are very territorial birds. And those birds will stand their ground until that dog gets a little bit too close and it's barking at its face off, and then they'll just hop into a tree. So so there was some treeing, but again, in in the classic traditional French and and English hunting with packs of dogs and 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 you know sniffing out the one particular stag you want to um, have, the treeing wasn't the big thing. That became a North American thing, and mainly because of the raccoon which didn't exist, which they they didn't have in Europe. They didn't have beasts like raccoons that would go into a tree or, you know, mountain lions. Mm -hmm. So most of the early coon dogs were foxhounds imported from Europe and and mixed with other hound blood, uh, with other, you know, types of hounds. Mm -hmm. Um, But those types of dogs often had trouble finding raccoons when they went up to trees, you know, so you get this dog from Europe, it comes from you know, 50 generations of dogs that have hunted boar and rabbit and deer. And all of a sudden it's hunting something that climbs up into a tree. Well, it doesn't necessarily have the reflexes or the instinct to, to look up and figure, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe it does, but, it, you know, it didn't know what to do. So breeders here, they started selectively developing and, and um, uh, selecting their dogs for treeing ability, the, the, the ability to follow the scent to the base of a tree, and then stay there until the hunters came. It was probably part training, but a lot of selective breeding as well. So coonhounds existed as a distinct type, but by the mid 1800 or up until the mid-1800s, late sorry, let me say that again. Coonhounds existed as a distinct type by the mid-1800s. You, you would have a dog that's called a coonhound. Everything before then was a European import or a cross from a European import that may or may not have treed. But by the mid to late 1800s, you had dogs that could do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And listen, 1885, a raccoon pelt sold for about 25 cents in 1885. I don't know the exact amount, but I I have a feeling that'd be like 50 bucks today. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, it wasn't, it was was a good, decent amount for, for, you know, raccoon pelt. Um, And up until about World War I, I don't know where you're at. Are raccoons still, are there still a lot around in your neck of the woods?
0: Yes. And in fact, I would say the majority of hound hunters um are running coon dogs. I, I think the coon hound Yeah, but
1: are raccoons the actual game, but the actual game that they're running, raccoons themselves. Is yes. the population of raccoons still y- very high?
0: Yes, it is. And you know, when it um so back in the nineties, the the mid to late nineties, we we kept all of our furs. And we we took those to the trading post, or I did, and that's how I got the money to to feed my dogs throughout the year is right. selling selling the furs to to the guys at the market. Um, and back then, I mean a good a good pelt would bring you anywhere from fifteen to twenty dollars. Um, now, right. and I have I haven't done this in years, so I may be miss speaking, but. From my knowledge, like the coon hides and stuff are they are way down and people aren't fooling with it like they used to. But yes, the coon population, especially in you know I'm in the western part of Virginia um, is really good and then I know the guys out you know like in Indiana and Illinois and Missouri and Ohio like they have they've always had a good coon population yeah
1: you know for the hounds i think one of the things that got them up and running was the fact that coon populations were huge and you know it probably ensures their survival to this day there's still a lot of them around they so the dogs still have a use you can still even though the price of furs is down a bit you can still at least cover some of your costs i mean up till about the first world war um there were even efforts to poison uh raccoons because there were just so many of them they were destroying crops in certain areas Mm -hmm. and in the 1920s and 30s and i think it was in response to that overpopulation to encourage people to, to hunt more coons, um, there was a raccoon fur coat fashion trend that was started. Uh, You know, all in the 1920s and all the way up to the the great depression, you could just think of like these old movies, like a old football movie or something. You know what I mean? You go to the old football game, dressed the head to toe in a raccoon coat. Mm -hmm. It was, it was sort of a, a, a trend back then. And so, you know, Hunters sold the pelts, but also they were a staple uh, protein in some of the diets in some of the people in the region. People ate a lot of raccoon. Now, again, they brought dogs that had never hunted raccoon. In fact, they didn't really hunt, you know, animals that ran up trees. Mm-hmm. Um, but they used those properties. They, they used those those talents and those capabilities that had been selectively bred into those dogs over hundreds of, hundreds of years, and then developed them for their own their own needs in in the U.S.
0: Yeah, so <clears throat> then can you break down when the breeds? So there's six different. Well, they've added the leopard cur into the hound um, registry for UKC. Um, the the six breeds of hounds, which you you know you're looking at your your black and tan, your red bone, your walker, your English, your blue tick, um, and then your then your plot dog. Um. Do you, do you know when that started breaking breaking up and having the separate breeds itself? Well, yeah, I mean
1: first of all we have to go back to, you know, understanding what a breed is. Um up until about 1880-1890 and even in the early um uh, part of the, you know, 20th century, the word breed and st- the words breed, strain, type, line Were interchangeable, you know. You would hear guys talking about, oh, so and so's breed of setter, and Mister so and so's breed of pointer, you know, or 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 a line or a strain. They would interchange those words. But it was only when breed registries um, like the UKC or the AKC or the FDSB, the American Field, various organizations got together and said, okay, right, a a breed of a dog is a, a specific group of dogs that share these particular traits and have an official name and they have an official breed standard and they breed true in other words you know we don't cross them with other breeds so all of the different you know um, uh, hound breeds in the states probably started um, as what we would call a land race now a land race again that was another one of those words that people would mix up they would call it a race or a breed or a type or a strain or a line and it meant basically the same thing it just meant this kind of dog and earlier I was saying that Dogs and hunting cultures are divided by geography, by class structure, by time, uh, by traditions. Well, they're also divided sort of by official standards and official sort of reasoning that this is my dog and this is the type of dog I have and I can no longer breed to that type. Otherwise, I'll have a mutt. But that didn't really come in until the, like I say, the 1880s, 1890s in in the US. Prior to that, they were called land races or they would have been a land race. Now, what is a land race? A land race is simply a group of dogs that develop in a certain area and breed more or less true, not because people want them to breed true, need them to breed true, or some registry says they must be bred true. They do it because the next town over is 50 miles and most people don't go more than 10 in their life. Because they are isolated geographically from each other, so there were probably types of hounds developed in one. Do you call a valley a holler where you're at? What do you call
0: a <laughs> yeah, valley? Yeah, we call it. Do you? Yeah, that's that Appalachian American slang. It's a holler. <laughs> yeah, a holler. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: but you can imagine, you know, you've got 50 families over a, you know, a, a, or, or 500 people or a thousand people living over a 50 mile area in one holler, and the next holler is way over the other side of that mountain and, and rarely do people ever go there. So the dogs you have in one holler are going to develop in their own way. And the, and the dogs three hollers over are going to develop in their own way simply because when you have a really good bitch and you want to find a good dog to put on her, well, where are you going? You're going next door. You're going down the road. You're going maybe to the next village. You're not going two hollers over. To, to actually get it. So these land races developed. So even before we had official breed standards, even before we had breed clubs and, you know, and, and official names, those quote unquote breeds of dogs existed. And the bigger ones the you know, and, and I'm sure there are a lot of them that are lost. Um, there is the July Hound. Have you ever
0: heard of a July
1: Hound? Yes, I
0: have. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've owned. Okay. I've had some cross oh, right? dogs. Mm-hmm. Yep. July intrigue. Yeah, well, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, July. Yeah, so there's speculation that the July Hound was put into pointers uh, in in America, but the July Hound isn't the recognized breed by the UK. Like it's not in the list of the seven. I'm just looking here for my list. I've got that list somewhere. But there's six different breeds uh, recognized by AKC, and I believe seven uh, listed by the UKC. Yes, C-
0: correct. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Yeah, and I don't think the July Hound is in there. No, um, no. but. Th- you know, and, and the July hound, why is it a July hound? Because the guy got it in July, you know, and it became a really, it was a really fast foxhound, probably from Ireland. And, and, you know, there's a whole story. There's a, there's a plaque up uh, somewhere in, I guess, in Georgia. Some town in Georgia has a plaque up to the, to the uh, someone will correct us on that, of the July hound. But like I say, there's these land races. Each hauler probably had their own local version of a treeing type of a dog. Um, and once standards came in and once these clubs came in and once official names and groups got together to officially, you know, rubber stamp their breed, this is what it is. This is what it looks like. Here's what it's supposed to do. Bingo. We've got a breed. They ended up with six or seven of them. I guarantee you there was 20 of them, but Mm -hmm. some of them just didn't make it. In fact, there probably still are some, if you go into some of the deepest haulers in your neck of the woods or somewhere around there, you'll probably find land races of dogs. Uh, I know for a fact that there are certain people in your area or in the southern states that are creating turkey dogs mm-hmm. um, that are simply breeding this to that and, and and mixing and matching their own type of dog and then coming up with something that breeds probably fairly true. You know what I mean? Like at least it's got a specific type and it does a specific thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So so that's basically the long answer to a to a very interesting question. Where they all come from? They were all around. It was the system that developed after them. The system didn't develop them the system identified them, some of them, but didn't identify others that have probably gone the way of the dodo. Some are probably gone. Some are probably still out there. You could probably still find some of these really, really old strains that never quite made it to the status of breed. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I, and I, I, I would say that in some secluded areas that you're exactly right now that I think about it in that context. So...
1: When I first did my first book, I was, you know, doing the history of the pointer, right? And everybody, when you, anything you read on the history of the pointer, you're going to come back to a point where it says it comes from the old Spanish pointer, which is now extinct. So that's what I would always read. The old Spanish pointer now extinct. And you would occasionally hear about the old Spanish double nosed pointer, which is now extinct, double nosed pointer. And always had, which is now extinct in its name or in the, in the description. Well, so I was writing my first book and I wrote a chapter on the old Spanish pointer and I was almost finished until I, this is now the internet's fired up and I'm doing some research and I'm talking to folks that I know in Spain and everything. And they said, have you heard of this guy? His name is uh, Carlos. Have you heard about this guy? He's uh, he's a specialist in the old Spanish breeds. Uh, here's some pictures of his dogs. And they sent me these pictures and lo and behold, it was an old Spanish pointer, a double nosed pointer. It's nose is like a, the end of a double barrel shotgun. Mm-hmm. Like it had a cleft nose. And what he did was the breed was, a, you know, quote unquote extinct. But he did his, his thesis for his doctorate. He was a veterinary student. And he did a thesis. And what he did is he went to all the old hillside towns in all northern Spain. He went into all the valleys and all the hills and looked for some of these old dogs. And sure enough, he found them. He found this extinct dog. He found a number of them. And he found more and more and he bred them together and he started selectively breeding them. And he resuscitated that old forgotten breed. He's bred over 3,000 of these dogs over the last 20 years. He he reinvigorated or revived this entire breed of dog simply by going into the old hills and finding these old little villages and the two or three dogs that are here and the four or five that are over there. You could probably do that in the States. If some veterinary students out there listening,
0: (laughs) there's a project for you. Yeah, there you go. So... Let's get into the big game side of it a little bit. What yep. what do you have on that? Well, again, so, so I'm just going to uh, – just give me
1: two seconds here. I just want to – because I have a really great story about a guy um, that went to the States here. Uh, Is it, yeah, here we go. Okay. Okay, so, so big game hunting, again – You you know, you got to go from the East Coast further West, right? So all of these dogs that are arriving from Europe, the majority of them, the vast majority, especially in the early days, are coming onto the East Coast. So they're, you know, arriving in anywhere from, you know, New York to Florida, all along the coast, and they're moving inland. And what are they finding inland? Well, they're finding coons. They're finding squirrels. They're finding uh, possum. uh, They're finding bear. Yeah, they're finding some deer, but it's all heavily forested areas. There's the old story that, you know, back in the day, a squirrel could, uh, you know, go from, let's say Maryland all the way down to Virginia, <laughs> um, or Maine to Virginia and never touch the ground. Cause he could go from one tree to the next, you know what I mean? It was that heavily forested. Yep. Right. Um, and so these dogs come and they become forest specialists. They become treeing specialists. They become dogs that are used for whatever they're locally hunting. Well, As America expanded out west, well, all of a sudden different hunting opportunities are coming out, or coming up. You know, you've got these opportunities now to hunt, well, bison, antelope, elk, deer, different mule deer. Um, you know, different type of game is presenting different types of opportunities. And while you've got this strain of dogs, you know, used to hunting coons at night and treeing them, well, there ain't no trees out there. What are they gonna do with them? Right? You've gotta now come up with different types of dogs. So more imports probably followed and more hybrids and more mixing. And these are where lurchers and long dogs come in. And so a lurcher is a sighthound, like a, like a greyhound bred to almost anything else, um, some sort of a terrier or some sort of a collie. And then you've got a, a lurcher. A long dog is when you've got two sighthounds. You've got a greyhound mixed with a saluki. Um, you, you've, you know, uh, you've got an Afghan hound and, uh, another, you know, uh, type of a gaze hound, right? A -hmm. a, a borzoi or something. And those are called long dogs. And there's a a, a fabulous story about a guy named George Gore. He came in from Ireland in 1854. He brought what he called stag hounds. So a stag hound back then would have been a a larger type of a greyhound with a, a shaggy coat, right? So Gore of Ireland brought 14 stag hounds and three dozen greyhounds. And he went to what would be today near Miles City, Montana. It's in eastern Montana. Mm-hmm. And legendary frontiersman Jim Bridger guided the hunting party. And they shot or they took with those dogs buffalo, deer, antelopes, and other animals. I mean, uh, Custer had his own uh, long dogs and lurchers, he had uh, greyhounds and staghounds. Uh, his wife Libby said that the, those dogs used to share the tent with uh, him and, or with her and, and Custer. Um, but by, you know, the early or the mid 1800s, it was military men, you know, all these guys that are going out pushing the frontier, right. Sort of, you know, explorers, loose and Clark had their dogs with them, but really it was, you know, these generals and sergeants and colonels that were going out, you know, to Fort Dodge or Fort this and Fort that they would have had dogs with them and the dogs they would have taken with them would have been dogs that were ideally suited for the type of, um, the type of game that they had. So here's another quote that I have in 1869. A quote from uh, one of these fellows says, "Everyone here at Fort Sill in present-day Oklahoma owns dogs, staghounds, wolfhounds, and rabbit hounds." That's uh, Wilbur Stuyvesant Nye. Um, yeah, and here's another one. The fort was home to the Kiowa Comanche Agency. The post interpreter's name was Horace P. Jones. Kept staghounds as a means of entertainment on Sunday afternoons. Traveling by wagon or horseback, soldiers, their women, and other post spectators would follow Jones onto the prairie to watch the hounds pursue deer, jackrabbits, coyotes, and wolves. Hmm. Nye described Jones as being a wildly, widely recognized figure with his stag hounds.
0: Huh? Do you have any history on Montague Stevens?
1: Probably, but I don't have it at hand. Right.
0: Yeah. So he was in the late. He was in the late. 1800s, and um, he actually wrote a book called Meet Mr. Grizzly. Um, mm. He was so far ahead of his time with the scenting abilities of the, and he used, he run bloodhounds. And now, oh, like, yeah. in the hunting world now, um, you know, nobody, I'm not going to say nobody, the majority of people, you know, they run one of the six breeds or or seven breeds, if you want to put in the leopard cur, and or mixed up between one of the six breeds is what most people run. Um, the bloodhound is not a very common hound that you see people actually hunting with, um, today, which is so, um, like from, from then from, like I said, the late 1800s to now, like it's so much different than, than the way they did things. But, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good book. And there's, there's some good information on him, but yeah. So, I mean, we've we've brought these dogs, and and what you're telling me, especially back then, a lot of those dog, those staghounds were still sight hounds. You know, they were, they
1: were, they were mixes, they were hybrids, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's an example here, um, Oliver Hartley, in his book uh, "Hunted Dogs of America," he he refers to a Minnesota Wolfer um a a type of dog he averaged 35 wolves a year um and he he, he, quoting here he pinned his faith in the long-eared variety of hounds with features of strength endurance good tonguers, and stayers he had been advised that the best dogs for coyotes were part english blue i.e. greyhounds and russian stag i.e. Borzois. he wrote Mm -hmm. that the english blue were very fast and the stag are long-winded with the grit to make a good fight He wrote that another admirer of capable dogs is the one-half Scotch stag hound or the Scottish deer hound and one-half greyhound. But he said that if you're going to do coyotes, if you're going after uh, coyotes, you're going to want to get some English bulldog in there or a quarter bloodhound and one-half foxhound. So they were really open to mixing whatever they, whatever they could, Mm -hmm. you know, in Australia, they would mix dingo into some of their stag hounds. You know what I mean? They Mm -hmm.
0: would,
1: they, they, whatever was there, you know, and to this day, and I'm sure some of your listeners understand this, or you might even know this,
0: you know, there's the Nebraska coyote hound. Um, you know about this one? Well, no, but we have one of our guys, um, Seth Hall out in, um, out west now he is a sight hound fanatic but go ahead because he's going to love this <laughs> well so the so
1: there's one a record of a nebraska coyote hound now, now i say coyote i know some people say coyote hound um 29 inches at the 29 and a half inches at the shoulder and weighing 90 pounds american coyote houndmen um were, you know they they created this by breeding one good one to the other and so every year um, there's there's a number of them around the country, but the largest one of these sales and races they have a they have a sighthound sale and race or a coyote dog uh, is in a place called Holdridge, Nebraska. Every fall around the first weekend in October, you can go there and see as many as 400 staghounds. and uh, of that 400, about ninety eight percent of them are for sale. So, yeah, it's the Nebraska coyote hound or the American staghound, and these are dogs that have been specifically bred and selected um you know to go after the game that's there but really i mean no matter what the breed is no matter what the type of hound we're talking about here in america they were developed by people to solve a problem to solve or to to help them solve a problem in other Mm -hmm. words there's that thing over there that i want (laughs) either to sell its fur or in my belly or both Mm -hmm. how do i go and get it um you know I, i also um i might need it to protect me i might need it for predator control as well i mean you know there was a lot of recreational hunting going on officers and wealthy foreign sportsmen you know they were they were you know watching these dogs doing they were having contests and everything but as settlers and ranchers you know, moved into the great plains their their cattle their hogs their sheep listen the, the wolves and the coyotes and the bodcaps and mountain lions were after them as well so they needed dogs To to not only, you know, for sport and for fun, but they needed them to to help them protect their livestock and to kill those predators. Um, And so really, you can't get sort of more Western or Midwestern American than that. These, These hybrid melting pot type dogs that take the best traits of all these dogs imported from somewhere else and then sort of refine them into a beast that does exactly what you need it to do where you are on the types of things that you're exposed to every day.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you know what you just said. You, you know, in Montague Stevens's book, you know that's what he did with his hounds. Is if you were a farmer and you had your sheep or cattle or something getting tacked by a grizzly or a wolf or a a, a mountain lion, that he would go out and track them down and 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 harvest that animal to keep it from hurting your livestock. And, yeah and one of the
1: when you mentioned tracking that's one of the things and and you also mentioned bloodhounds and that might be one of the things that you know happened uh, here in America or that that one of the divergences from Europe so all your dogs let me ask you all do your all of your dogs i i call it give tongue uh, they, yes. they, they, they give mouth. Or they bay. Mm-hmm. is is that yep. what you say they give tongue or what is mouth you say?
0: yeah they're they give they give they they're open mouth dogs so that means when they hit the odor, it's kind of like a beagle. When they hit the odor, they open on the track and let you know, here it is. Now, okay. some of the dogs, which is what most houndsmen prefer, well, I definitely preferred. The t- when my, if my dog's given a certain type of mouth, I can tell you the age of the track. So an example yeah. would be um, my old dog, if he's given a long ball – you know, a big long ball and there's a big long pause between opening, that means that track's really, really cold. And if those Mm. balls start getting shorter and less time in between them, which is just common sense, um, that lets you know that that track is a lot better. So I can tell you, you know, Hey, this is a good track or this is a track that we're going to spend a lot of time on and we may not catch it. So yes, open mouth or, um, open trailing dogs that's kind of what we you're saying is you know open tongue or whatever
1: yeah giving so open yeah so they open when they smell that scent and you Mm -hmm. can tell now um could you can you tell your dogs from your neighbor's dogs the different voices absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah so like i was saying earlier you know in one hauler i bet you there was a certain type of voice that was preferred for whatever reason, they liked it that way. They liked it higher, or lower, or whatever, or all the dogs shared a common genetic heritage. So they had a similar voice. And then the next hauler over, they might've had a different voice. It's the same, you know, when we go back to France and England, but one of the things they did there, and I'm unaware of it here, you might correct me if I'm wrong here. Do any houndsmen here select dogs that do not open? Is that of any use to you whatsoever?
0: Well, I cannot speak for me. But I have heard, and you cat and coat, uh, cat and bobcat guys, you know y'all chime in here. But I've heard that a lot of the guys that are bobcat hunting um, want their dogs a little bit tighter, so they catch they catch the the cat quicker, um, and that's okay. just what I've heard from yes. a couple people. So.
1: Sure, so that's an observation that people make, right? Um, You got a bunch of dogs and all of them open, but this one doesn't. So what do you do with that one that doesn't? Do you get rid of them? Do you, you know, give them away, whatever, or do you find another use for them? It's the same as how pointing dogs came about, right? I mean, you've got all dogs, all predators will pause before they jump on something. I mean, it doesn't matter if you you know, a cat or a dog or you with a fly on your hand, you're going to you're gonna pause before you swat it, right? That's just the, the pausing behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, they noticed that some would pause an extra long time. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, the brilliant idea was, hey, let's use that and then select for it so that they're pausing indefinitely. And that's how pointing dogs came about. Well, when you're observing a bunch of hounds and 99 of them open, but one doesn't, well, what do you do with the one who doesn't? Well, what the French did and the English did, and others, the Germans too, a lot of in Europe, they, they do have a use for it. And in fact, those dogs are the ones that became the ancestors of all pointing dogs, uh, short-haired pointing dogs. So there's these dogs called leash hounds, L-E-A-S-H, like a leash, um, because they were they were hunted on leash. And leash dogs, what they were, were specifically selected from a pack of hound dogs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were specifically selected because they didn't open up, because they were quiet. Now, why would you want a quiet hound? Well, your king is out there. Again, this is rich people. Your prince is out there. And there's a lot of deer. And they're the only ones that have the right to get on horseback and and Mm -hmm. chase deer. And they're in the forest. And there's hundreds of deer, thousands of deer around. And they have the right to go anywhere they want. So it's not actually that difficult for them to. And they got packs of hounds. They've got all kinds of huntsmen helping them out. So it's not actually that difficult to get a deer, any deer. If they were hungry, they could get a deer in 10 minutes. So it wasn't about getting a deer. It was about getting the deer. They had guys out there all year round looking at the stags and they would classify them just like we do today with scores of their antlers. You know, I got a X X number of point deer. Well, they would choose one particular stag. And then one day they'd come and they'd go, OK, Mr. Prince, Mr. King, whoever you are, we found a deer or we've 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 identified a deer he's he's bigger than the one your neighbor got if you get him you got bragging rights for the rest of the year And so they sort of go okay let's go get that one specific deer well how are you gonna get one specific deer well you would use the dog that doesn't open he's got an outstanding nose just like all the dogs in his pack and he can track just like you were saying he can go on a cold track he can go on a hot track but he's on a leash and now what you do is you send one guy with that one dog to trace that one deer and you find where he's bedding. And in order to find where he's bedded down, well, you better be real quiet and you better be real, you know, soft and gentle on your approach to that deer. So it took a, a well-trained deer or a well-trained dog with a really good trainer to do that. And that was called a leash hound. And those leash hounds would go all the way and find that stag where he's bedded down. And then they would back away slowly and come back to the camp and go, okay, I know where he's at. Now let's round up the posse. <laughs> let's get the big old hound dogs. Let's get the the, the ones that are going to open. Let's get the, the, the you know, the, the dogs that are going to run it down and go after that one stag. And so eventually leash dogs became their own thing. They would breed leash dogs to other leash dogs and they became their own thing. Hmm. And you know what those leash dogs did? Once they were on that end of that trail and they saw or smelled, probably didn't see it. They would smell it, bedded down. They would stop and point it. So there's that long pause. So now you're selecting dogs to have an extraordinary nose. You're selecting dogs to be quiet. You don't want a pointing dog to bark. And you're selecting dogs that have a long pause. So eventually that hound, the leash dog, became the pointer over hundreds and hundreds of years. But it seems that what you're saying is that maybe only in North America, only some cat guys, some, you know, bobcat or or mountain lion guys, are selecting or actually want dogs that don't open up?
0: Yeah, and so and to to give you a little um, hindsight on my dogs, so I've got three dogs that are three quarter treeing walker, one quarter running walker. So I have running dogs in my hounds, um, which I'm using for treeing and game, and two of the three are tight mouth. Which is exactly kind so of when what you you're say saying.
1: Tight mouth means they don't they don't open, open. a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when the game's jumped oh, at all, like at all, no, no. When the game is like when the game is jumped, um, when the bear gets out of the bed and's running, they they very open mouth. But from okay. the time that they smell the track to the time that they jumped him, they yes. don't say a whole lot. You'll get a bark here and there. Um, you'll get a bark here and there and that's it. Now I have got another dog that will open as soon as she smells the track and she will open mm. continuously until it's to that point. Does that make sense?
1: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I I a friend of mine, she lives in Germany and Germans they actually want their, they're the only ones that want their pointing dogs to, to open when they're on a track. Um, they have to open on a track and on sight. If they see something running and they're chasing it, they have to open uh, to be allowed to breed in certain breeds. Mm -hmm. Well, years ago, she fell in love with Cocker Spaniels. And, uh, in England, Cocker Spaniels are used to hunt birds here too, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, they're not supposed to bark. In fact, if you're in England and your Cocker Spaniel barks, you're going to get some serious side eye from the people around you. (laughs) It's just not, not supposed to be, what they're supposed to do. But my friend, she, she got these cockers and started breeding them. And sure enough, 20 years later, she has cocker spaniels that work like hounds. She has cocker spaniels that she leaves, you know, she'll let them off into the forest. She'll stand at the end and they'll go out there and they'll chase boar or deer back to her so she can shoot them. And the entire time they're barking their heads off. Hmm. So it's a, it's a trait you can select for. And in hounds, obviously it's one of the most important traits Not only do they bark, but how do they bark and the pitch and the rhythm that they bark, Mm -hmm. but also the other way. You could select against it because now you've got a dog that still has everything that that hound does, all that grit, that fantastic nose, um, all of the talents that it has, but it allows you to hunt if you want to or if you need to silently, which is really cool too. So like I say, all those dogs, they all came over from europe with with the europeans who came here but they've been adapted um to the various you know local conditions of the terrain and the game that they're after
0: mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it's interesting i mean you know we know that most dogs derive from kind of from the same same animals and then how do you get these thousands of breeds that we have nowadays um The dogs are
1: the most plastic, you know, the most malleable creature on the planet. Um, you know, they're, they're fascinating. I mean, if you take a Chihuahua and a great Dane and you put them on an island and come back a thousand years from now, you'll basically have coyotes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They won't be a coyote, but it'll be a wild dog and it'll look sort of like a coyote. They, They will revert back. The only thing that keeps them the way they are is us. Um, you you let them all go, they'll all just revert to the basic prototype dog that you'll see hanging around, you know, garbage tips in, in India or, you know, South America, mm-hmm. basically cur dogs. Um, but, but, that, and that's why I say, and that's why, you know, in our podcast, in our magazine, that's why we're so fascinated in hunting dog culture because hunting dog culture is human culture. It basically shows us and, and teaches us about who we are and where we came from and about our differences and similarities. Like I say, if you went back 500 years to England, you would recognize some, you wouldn't be able to understand a word they said, but you would sure as heck have a lot in common with what they're doing with their dogs.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, Greg, I I, I appreciate your time. And I know the listeners are going to be picking up all kinds of information from what you've told us. Is there anything about the hound that you want to leave us with, or your research, or what you've found that that um, that you that you think that we should know?
1: Yeah, I think that you should know that you should be proud of your dogs, and you should be proud of what you've done, what the houndsmen and women of you know North America, I should say, have done with their dogs. Um, it, it's always curious to me, again, you know, who specializes in pointing dogs, that America has never developed its own pointing dog. Um, we have some of the best pointing dogs in the world. I mean, Americans breed the best pointers and setters in the world, yet they don't, there's no such thing as an American setter or an American pointer officially. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> they do exist. I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, they've been bred here for so long that they are American, but we still call them English setters and Irish setters and Gordon setters. And we still, you know, call German short hairs and German wires. We still call them by those names. We've never, North Americans have never developed their own brand or their own specific named pointing dog but they have with the hounds Mm -hmm. um the you know they're as american as rock and roll they're as american as you know you ain't nothing but an old hound dog It, it it really is the the melting pot idea of america and the genius of americans and american hunters to to take this raw material that they got from overseas and develop it into their own local varieties and local types. And like we were saying, you know, your own little land race in one holler over to the next and to come all the way forward so that they're still thriving to this day and that people like yourself and people that you're associated with are just so passionate about their breeds. Yeah. That's the one thing I should, I would want everybody to know is be damn proud of what you got and about what you've done with these dogs. They're, they're, you know, they're unique in the world.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's a lifestyle for most of us. And, you know, like you said in the very beginning of this, you know, what I do is for them, because of them, and with them. And that's how I spend the majority of my time is with a hound.
1: Well, good on you. I mean, yeah. it really is. I can't think of a more, you know, sort of exciting type <laughs> of a lifestyle. And also, also the fact that, you know, kun men or houndsmen are not they're not as it's it's almost like this this like a hidden treasure in a way you know what i mean like i speak to some people in france they have these really cool french hunting breeds or pointing breeds that nobody's ever heard about and i'm like do you guys not realize what you have in your hands do you not realize just how precious this treasure you have in your hands really is Because they're very unassuming people. And they just, oh, yeah, this is my dog, and we love him. We do this and that. And I find houndsmen to be the same way. You know what I mean? Like they're just, they're happy with what they do. They stick to their own kind. They're sort of doing their own thing. They're not out there blowing their own horn, Um, which is cool, which is, you know, because you don't want people in your face, you know, bragging to you and doing all sorts of things. But sometimes I just kind of want to remind them that what they have is absolutely precious. What they have is, again, it's unique. It's just something that's, Super cool. And I, I really hope that they appreciate it for what it is and, and to give themselves credit for what they've done with these breeds and with these dogs.
0: Yeah. And to carry it on from, you know, as long as, you know, as history has, you've, you've followed it back into history. That's, that is quite the, uh, the achievement or the feat that we've actually been able to do that.
1: Oh, you've done it and improved on them and created your own kind. I mean,
0: really? Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. Yep. Yeah. All right, Craig, for, the, for us on Houndsman XP and the journey that we leave every episode with, thank you for helping us teach, train, and learn, and definitely learn about the history um, of the dog and the hound and where it comes from. So thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much.